Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Keith Clark is the featured author of this installment of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, arts, and culture discuss their new books. Hi, I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and the book that I'll be talking about with Keith Clark is his wonderfully penned The Radical Fiction of Anne Petrie, published this year by the Louisiana State University Press. Please. Listen in to our lively exchange. Hi, Keith. Hi, Rasan. Today I'll be speaking to Keith Clark, who is currently Associate Professor of English and African and African American Studies at George Mason University. He is the author of several articles and book chapters on African American literature and gender. He is also the author of the wonderfully written book, Black Manhood and James Baldwin, Ernest J. Gaines, and August Wilson and he is the editor of Contemporary Black Men's Fiction and Drama. Today, I'll be speaking to Keith Clark about his wonderful new addition to African-American literary criticism. His book is entitled The Radical Fiction of Anne Petrie, published by Louisiana State University Press this year in 2013. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Vershawn, and thank you for this opportunity. I um admire your your work so much as well and it's just a great opportunity to chat with you. Keith, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I am I'm a, a southern gentleman. I'm from the state of Virginia, um Norfolk, Virginia specifically, and I um started my undergraduate education here as well. I am a graduate of the College of William and Mary where I was an English major. Um, it didn't quite start out that way. Um, I started college with the thought of um, maybe going to law school or studying business, something practical, um, something that I thought I could make a little bit of money at. But, uh, you know, sometimes you don't uh, end up where you think you're going to. And so I um, decided to study literature my second year. And so I uh, was an English major and I graduated in um 1985. And from there, I um, went on to an MA program at uh, the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And so I, um, I was there until, let's say, I finished in 87. I wrote a master's thesis on um, interesting uh, choice of topics. I wrote a master's thesis on James Baldwin, Amir Baraka and Edward Albee. <laughs> um, and so from there, I um, actually decided I needed a break. I was sick of school. So I decided to um, get a get a real job. So I taught at Howard University for a year. That was um, in the late 80s. And after that year, I um, entered um, a Ph.D. program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, and I was there until uh, 1993 when I um, graduated. So from there, I um, got a job at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, outside of D.C., and I have been here since 1993. Wow. How do you <laughs> like it? 
I love it. Um, I love the area, first and foremost. I always, you know, since I was a kid, um, had dreamed of, of living in Northern Virginia. It's interesting. The northern part of the state is very different from the southern part of the state. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was a kid, my parents used to, um, we used to come up to Alexandria, Virginia, to visit um, one of my mom's closest friends from college and her husband, and we'd stay in Alexandria. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Even, you know, as a child, I just noticed it was a great place, and I loved going into D.C. And so I'd always wanted to live here. And um, so when the opportunity came for me to um, to teach at George Mason, I, I jumped at it. So I, I love it here. Very nice. Uh, Keith, I want to jump right into discussing this book now um, and starting with the introduction, because in it, you uh, detail how you first came to this project, which wasn't your original intent. No, it was not. I um, I had finished the um, first book you mentioned. I finished the book on Black Manhood and Baldwin, Gaines and Wilson, and you know, I took a little bit of a breather. You know how it is after you finish a big project, you need to exhale. And um, so during that, the interim between, you know, the, and finishing that book and, and conceptualizing and starting another project, I thought, well, I was very interested in, um, in black Southern writers, and I was going to start in on that project. And I had, um, you know, prepared myself to do that and done a lot of reading and research. And, uh, but just like my uh, undergraduate career, I ended up in a completely different place. And so I, um, I ended up changing my focus and, um, it it was almost as though this project was calling me, you know, I felt, you know, just compelled to do it. (laughs) I don't know if it's, you know, intellectual or divine intervention or something, but it was just, it was something I felt like I needed to, to do. And so, um, yeah, my focus changed dramatically, frankly, you know, Ann Petrie is, is, um, is not a Southern writer, although I, I do talk about a, a, southern dimension that um you can see in a lot of her works but she you know she's from um she's from connecticut so mm-hmm. she's uh you know far cry from from ernest Gaines and you know albert murray and some of the other writers that i was um that i was interested in so <laughs> well you talk about in the introduction finding a treasure trove of archives on petrie yeah. and that you just had to mine those and yeah. in looking at them uh this project seemed to to spring spring up at you yeah, it really did. I mean, um, so her papers are her papers are actually housed in a couple of places. They're housed in the um, James Willen Johnson collection at Yale, but I think even more of her materials are at um, the Gottlieb Library at Boston University. And so when I was at the Gottlieb, um, and I was I didn't even go to to do any research. I was with a friend who was you know doing her a project on Petrie and Dorothy West. And so I went and tagged along and, you know, went through some of the materials and it was, you know, there were just folders and boxes of, of just, uh, uh, an array of things, just a, 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 you know, like I said, like you said, a treasure trove of, um, of things, letters, manuscripts, journals, um, you know, notes written on the back of, um, receipts, just all kind of stuff, letters from um, elementary school students. Petrie also was a prolific um, uh, writer for children's and adolescent books. And so there was all of this stuff, letters from politicians, um, letters from, you know, Carl Van Vechten, um, 
I think there was something in, even in there from uh, Langston Hughes or Paul Robeson. I can't remember. But just all kind of stuff. And I just thought, good grief. Here's a writer who has a whose career is just very rich, and there's a lot here, and it just um, it hadn't really been explored. I thought in the kind of depth that that her work and her life uh, warranted, and so I just um, you know I just shifted gears. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and you said that some of these uh, uh, things that um, called you to this project were um, misconceptions about Petrie's work or uh, a limited framework around her work? Yeah, you know, when people think of literary histories and, you know, we think of these categories and we box writers, I mean, you know, we feel like, you know, we have to have categories and be able to place and situate people. And, you know, that makes sense, certainly, for doing, you know, literary history and for pedagogical purposes. But, you know, for me, I guess too often um, when people would sit, talk about Petrie, it always would be within the context of Richard Wright. You know, it was like a a shadow that she could not escape. And certainly, Wright's work um, influenced hers. And you know, she's the first to talk about you know the importance of Richard Wright, and he certainly was a, a pioneering figure um, and role model for a lot of writers in the in the 30s and 40s and 50s and you know and beyond that. Um, but what I also saw, and, um, and I talk about this in the, actually, I published an article on Petrie several years ago. It was the first thing I actually published on her was in 92. And I talk about how she clearly is influenced by Richard Wright and by, you know, the naturalism and protest, um, uh, discourses that he pioneered, but she also was doing some very innovative things, um, in outside of beyond those discourses. And so I was interested in, you know, some of the fascinating things, for example, that she does with gender and sexuality, which, you know, really um, had not been uh, really explored that much. I mean, I I hate to say, but um, there still is only one other um, monograph on Petrie that was written back in um, 1996. And so there was just this, you know, this this major um, critical and scholarly gap in terms of, you know, the kind of work that had been written on Petrie, given her prolific um, publication output. So, yes, but you know. as you as you say, we rightly, um, as you say, rightly, we tend to focus on um, her best selling um, first novel, mm-hmm. The Street and, yeah. and one short story. Yeah, but you yeah. but you mind uh, um, her other literary works. What what of her other works stand out to you? Well, you know, I think her novel, um, The Narrows, which was actually her third and last novel, which is remarkable. You know, she died and um, she died in 97 and, you know, she published her last novel in 1953. But her novel, The Narrows, is um, I would I would call it an undiscovered classic or masterpiece. It, mm-hmm. it came out in 53, which was the year that um, Baldwin published Go Tell It on the Mountain. And it was a year after, you know, Invisible Man. So, you know, the shadows that those books cast and basically eclipsed, <laughs> eclipsed a whole lot of other things. You know, I think in 53, um, Gwendolyn Brooks also published uh, Mark Martin that year. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and so I think, you know, because of the way the literary establishment works, you know, those, the male writers were, you know, privileged and foregrounded and, you know, pedestalized. And a book like The Narrows, which is so complex and layered and just 
dealing with so many, you know, varied strands of issues with respect, not, you know, just race, but again, gender and sexuality and the, you know, crime story. And she's just doing some remarkable things. She, you know, does a lot with, um, the teaching of black children. That was a topic that she was very interested in. Um, you know, um, I can't remember the year Carter Woodson published the miseducation of the Negro, but, um, Petrie is very much concerned with how uh, the school system, you know, miseducates uh, black children. And so the book, you know, treats that topic. It's just really, just really rich and layered and, you know, complex. And yet, you know, there's still people, you know, even in the field of African-American literature that, that either, you know, don't know this book or, you know, let alone have not read it. And so, um, I just felt like there was um, somebody needed to do this work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you yeah. do a nice job of it. You um, uh, take her not so much out of the um, tradition of naturalism, but a, a expand um, her her corpus for us, showing how she um, um, used uh, Gothic treatments in her work. Can you tell us about... Um, Petrie's uh, use of the Gothic tradition and some of the other uh, tropes and themes that that you discuss in the book. Yeah, you know, I in reading her, I um, you know thought to myself, boy, there's a lot uh, there's a lot of stuff here that's sort of dark and macabre and reminds me, um, you know, of as much of of Poe as it does Richard Wright. And so in doing my research, there's a, a wonderful book by a, a pioneering uh, Petrie scholar, Hazel Irvin. She, Hazel is really marvelous. She, you know, did a lot of the important, you know, yo person's work and bringing Petrie um, to the fore early in terms of scholarship. And so uh, Professor Irvin has a book, um, a bio, a biocritical study of Ann Petrie, and it includes um, all of Ann Petrie's interviews. And so in one of those interviews, she talks about, you know, having read Poe and uh, having read Frederick Douglass and um, just really being um, entrenched in multiple literary traditions. And one of my favorite quotes from Petrie um, is from an, uh, an autobiographical essay she wrote in 1988, and she talked about um, her ancestors, and she talks about one, uh, one uh, aunt who was a conjure woman, and at one point, Petrie even says, you know, I am a conjure woman. And so I thought, you know, this interest in Poe and, you know, this discussion of conjure. And, you know, you can see it in her work. One of her um, stories, again, one that's not very well known, but one of her stories is a ghost. It's a comic ghost story in which a, a black woman who was a maid uh, who's dead comes back to life. And she basically haunts <laughs> uh, haunts these white men who are trying to, you know, trying to destroy her legacy. And it's just... It's a comic story, but it's also very, very serious in the issues it's raising about class and race and um, the politics of burial. You know, it's not something we really think about. But um, so I was, I was just interested in that. You know, other sort of dark and macabre side um, of Anne Petrie as well. I mean, even in a book like The Street, you know, on the one hand, clearly it's um, approximating um, the you know sort of standard naturalistic um, tropes. But on the other hand, the the setting in Harlem and the and the way that the um is set in 
a uh, a tenement building, and mm-hmm. the way Petrie writes about that tenement building, it could very just as easily be a haunted castle in mm-hmm. the way that she writes about it. And so, you know, I was interested in how she used used these images of darkness and you know sequestration and entombment and um and in, you know insanity and and mental disorder. You know how these very gothic themes find themselves um, in her work and. You know, I just thought a lot of times when people think about the gothic, you know, African-American literature, it's very gothic. You know, it deals with a lot of these, you know, sort of dark, secretive things that we don't want to talk about, and you know, which race has always been one of those kinds of things. So um, I just thought it was it was there and it just needed to be, you know, to be mined. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, uh, some of our readers are probably familiar with your work on gender and masculinity, and you discuss... Um, and and Petrie's um, uh, dealings and and um, writings about manhood and masculinity. Can you talk about that for us? Sure. I um, you know, again, in thinking about the you know the dominant representations of black men um, in literature in the you know late thirties, forties, fifties, you know, of course, the, the the person who is who emerges or comes to the forefront is Bigger Thomas, an Invisible Man. Clearly, and so one of the things that that struck me about Petrie was that she was trying to, it seems to me, offer a much more multi-layered or multivalent um, representation of masculinity, one that departed from you know the sort of standard um, representation of black men as you know. Um, as as violent or as hypersexual or as a communal or um you know a familial or isolated you know it seemed like her work was was pushing against and trying to witness against these um you know rather dwarfing frankly uh, uh depictions of black men and so you know when she writes a story like Miss Muriel which she published um in 19 I think 1957 and in this story, she has, um, you know, a character who sort of fairly clearly fits that mode. But then, you know, she has another character who, you know, in essence is passing for straight, but who's clearly gay. And he's trying to, you know, straddle this straight gay line. And he's also trying to do so in a context in which, you know, he's trying to um, stand up for the race, if you will. And so, so it results in some really fascinating sort of um, uh, dynamics and some sort of, you know, pyrotechnics in terms of, you know, trying to straddle these different lines. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, what she's doing to me is just so fascinating in that it's it's departing really from what the dominant representations of the day um, of the day were. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, again, for a black woman writer to, you know, be including these characters who, you know, um, straddle gay straight lines or, you know, and a couple of her works, they're characters who, you know, enact a masculinity that, you know, people would consider effeminate. And so, you know, again, here's this woman writer in the in the 40s and 50s, you know, departing from the, the dominant um, representation and the dominant strand. And um, and I just found it, you know, just again something that needed to be to be talked about, and and something that needed to be, you know, discussed in terms of gender theory and you know theories about sexuality. I mean, her work really lends itself to that kind of study. Now, most people wouldn't, uh, I would think, ex- expect Petrie to deal with um, 
um, these kinds of, of things. But you you have several chapters on uh, Petrie's um, dealing with masculinity and one on um, uh, what, what you call a queer mixture of violence and love and mm-hmm. hate and terror. Can yeah. you talk to us about that? Yeah, that is, um, I think that's the book's um, penultimate chapter, and it's um, it's a lengthy chapter, which is on just one story, um, in darkness and confusion. Mm-hmm. And um, in that chapter, the emphasis is not so much on um, on um, the gay straight uh, and the blurring of those lines, but it's it's really about a char- about a, a a male character who sort of finds himself in a gothic situation and that he's sort of sequestered in his Harlem home, which becomes sort of a, a haunt, a haunting prison to him. And so he tries to negotiate different strategies for, you know, finding some modicum of liberation in this, you know, setting. And it's fascinating. So one of the things that, that I'm interested in in that chapter is how Petrie takes the domestic space, the home space. And, you know, often, you know, women writers think about somebody like Anella Larson or even, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, they portray, you know, marriage and domesticity as something that's really, you know, harrowing for black women. So what Petrie does is in effect turn the tables and in this story, you know, the domestic and the home space is really harrowing and haunting for this black man who's really um, uh, victimized, might be too strong a word, but who's really haunted by the specter of um, of his wife, you know, who's very overbearing and, you know, her niece who torments him about his, um, he's small in stature, so who torments him. And so, you know, the home space becomes this um, this milieu of, of, mm-hmm. of fear and, you know, psychological disequilibrium. And so he seeks, you know, different venues to try to, you know, achieve a modicum of selfhood, but the strategies that he uses to do that, unfortunately, are some of the more predictable strategies that men, you know, fall back on. So, you know, he resorts to, to a type to for example to xenophobia. You know, he, he attacks um he attacks Japanese citizens and mm-hmm. trying to, 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 to show himself as a, a real man and and so um you know, it's just fascinating you know, how how the character in, in in Darkness Confusion tries to you know tries to come up with some strategies to to push up against this you know the different forms of terror that he faces, you know, terror from without, but also terror from within. Mm-hmm. Also, terror from within. Yeah. So, how does your book, you think, um, seek to uh, resituate Anne Petrie? Well, you know, I, I think um, I believe, if I remember correctly, one of the chapters even talks about you know resituating. Mm-hmm. I think of a reluctant icon, I call her. And one of the things that I guess I'm interested in doing, and maybe it's more situate than resituate, but I'm just interested in making sure that when people talk about the African-American literary canon, that, you know, it's not just a sort of um, the same cavalcade of, you know, great male authors. You know, when people think about the, the, the 40s and 50s, you know, if, when, if black women writers are thought of, it's often um, Gwendolyn Brooks in poetry and, you know, in the, in the late 50s, Lorraine Hansberry in drama. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I, I want to make sure that people know that there was a major writer of fiction, um, African-American woman writer of fiction in the 50s um, and 1960s, and that Anne Petrie was, um, was there and was writing very serious and complex fiction 
which, you know, dealt with a range of topics and themes. You know, race certainly one, but, you know, class, you know, as we've said, class, sexuality, the macabre, um, you know, psycho- psychological issues. You know, there's just a, it's a long and, and rich, um, rich um, history of what she was trying to deal with. And, you know, too often, you know, um, you know, black women writers are often, you know, amputated from the, from the um from the literary tree um or if they are included you know it's always you know the sort of same people it's Morrison or or Walker and not to um to minimize their accomplishments but you know there's a history of of major black women um fiction writers and so I think Anne Petrie deserves to be you know put in the company of um of Richard Wright of James Baldwin of Toni Morrison I really think her work you know just merits that kind of uh that kind of um, attention and recognition. So let's say um, uh, a faculty um, that uh, teaches African-American literature and Mm -hmm. African-American literary theory and criticism Mm -hmm. um, would like to use your book in a course. Mm -hmm. Would you imagine um, that such a course would um, uh, include many of the authors that you've uh, spoken of today, or would that course be a single course on Petrie? Mm. Um, would it be a course that, that that tries to put her in conversation over the long durée of African-American literature? What what would that kind of course look if you had to design yeah. it? Well, I think, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating question. I really thought about that, Vershawn. Um, I think it could be a course that could could put her both within the tradition and, you know, on the cutting edge of the tradition. You know, I think such a course would, you know, I like um, one of Houston Baker's earlier, earlier, um, earliest books was called The Journey Back. And so I think on the one hand, such a course, you know, if it had, if it had Petrie at the center, but also wanted to, you know, situate her or, or put her in conversation with other writers who were dovetailing um, these same issues, I think it could incorporate uh, works like um, James Willen Johnson's The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, which um, does some interesting things also with sexuality um, and race, or a book like um, Nella Larson's uh, Passing, which also is, is, you know, doing, again, straddling characters who straddle lines about race and, uh, and sexuality. So I think such a course... You know, if they were going to use my book and sort of foreground Petrie, I also think it could show how Petrie's work sort of speaks back to mm-hmm. a tradition of writers who are doing some similar things. And I think it could also, um, you know, look ahead to writers like um, the, uh, the the young, um, relatively young, I guess now, uh, African-American Southern writer uh, Randall Keenan is a marvelous writer. Um, whose work is set in uh, North Carolina mm. and is decidedly about, you know, the sort of queer silences of the black community in North Carolina and how the, that presence sort of haunts the black community is something that, you know, the community really has, you know, not really wanted to deal with. Um, and so I think, you know, Petrie both is, you know, looking back and um, presaging writers like Randall Keenan. Um, and clearly, you know, you could put her in conversation with Baldwin, of course. Um, so I think, yeah, I think such my work would be useful in, in such a course and, you know, and can incorporate uh, a range of, of, of writers from the past and writers, you know, that, that Petrie um, 
didn't even know. <laughs> Very excellent. I was struck by one thing in particular um, in the writing of your book, the way mm-hmm. in which, as you discuss Petrie, uh, you you talked about her as if you were really familiar with her, <laughs> yeah. uh, with her personality. Yeah. So it wasn't just her um, fiction that you're writing about, but you were writing about Petrie as a person. Yeah, and that's that's really perceptive, Vershawn, because you know I didn't know Anne Petrie um, personally, and she was um, she wasn't somebody who really you know it's interesting. We think of you know one of my favorite writers, obviously, is James Baldwin. And I think of James Baldwin and Richard Wright too as you know sort of literary celebrities, and you know Petrie was somebody who did not like celebrity. You know, she wasn't, you know, somebody cloistered away, um, you know, hermetically sealed and, you know, just, you know, writing in a closet, but she was not somebody who sought or craved the spotlight. And so, um, there was something just about her personality. You know, she also struck me as a very serious person and someone who, you know, didn't really suffer fools gladly. And so she just struck me as somebody who was about her work and um, and was very serious about her work. I mean, not serious in an off-putting kind of way, but serious in a way that said, okay, here's what I have to say, and I'm going to put it out there, and I'm not going to be much concerned with the reception or with, you know, celebrity or being a spokesperson. I'm going to utter some very um, difficult truths, and not just difficult truths about white and black, and not just difficult truths which, you know, portray, you know, white people as, you know, perfidious or victimizing and black people as, you know, the infallible victims. I'm going to utter some truths that put a microscope on black people. I'm going to utter some truths that put a microscope on a a, a culture that uh, mandates, you know, that men um, act in a certain way and perform a certain type of masculinity. I'm going to turn a spotlight on some things that, you know, might not be racially correct. Um, you know, one short story we were talking before the interview about um, some of the things that were left out of the book. And so one of the things that I had to, to, to limit or cut back on my criticism was a short story that Petrie published um, in 1971 called The New Mirror. And this is a story about, um, for all intents and purposes, a man, a family, you know, African American man, a family man, and he, um, and a, and a, and his daughters, about a, a, a his adolescent daughter, and it's about how they really think of themselves as being physically grotesque. And so this, you know, Petrie published this at a time when you know, black is beautiful. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You know, all of this pride in Africa and you know, all of this race pride. And she published this at a time when, um, at that time. And so she was asking some questions about, well, is this rhetoric? Um, has this really reached everybody in the race? Is this where we all are? Or are there some people who still are um, encumbered with, um, you know, notions of blackness as being, you know, hideous and grotesque? Um and this came, I believe this came before Morrison uh, even published The Bluest Eye, right around that time. So, you know, again, Petrie was somebody that appealed to me because she was she was not afraid. You know, she was, you know, really fearless and, and uttering truths that um, didn't really try to uh, hew to anybody's um, racially correct or, or politically correct or gender correct, you know, any t- anybody's line. She she asked the questions and they may have, you know, been 
uh, uncomfortable, um, but she she posed them, and I, and I guess that's what I found in her work that so appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's written a book knows that uh, one might start out with an idea or kind of clear trajectory mm-hmm. uh, or notion, but that there are discoveries and surprises along the way. Yeah. Uh, what was one of those for you? One discovery or surprise? Um. Well, that's 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 interesting. Um. You know, I guess. Um. I guess one. Discovery or one, one discovery surprise was this. Um, I never really thought how funny Petrie <laughs> is, you know, because you know, again, the stuff she's writing about is, is very serious and you know, somber um, issues. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories about her is about an African American um, English. Uh, English male English teachers, of course, has <laughs> appealed to me. Who's from Virginia, and who um, is really haunted by a lot of things about uh, himself that he had really repressed and didn't want to deal with. And so she's written about, you know, she writes about some pretty heavy stuff, but also in um, in a book like The Nares, for example, it's just shot through with so much sort of sly and wry humor, and. Um, I, I guess that's the, the the thing that I guess surprised me about Petrie was just how just how funny she could be in a kind of understated, you know, sort of flat, dry kind of way, and um, that was was something that that came to appeal to me about her as well. Mm-hmm. I I I, so I got that um, after, uh, through reading your book too, and one other thing that I want to ask you before I ask you to read from the book mm-hmm. is about. Um, um, Something that you've spoken about here and a through line uh, in the book in talking about Petrie um, among some of her contemporaries like uh, Baldwin, Wright and Ellison. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you talk about Petrie or like for um, our listeners to understand Petrie in the African-American women's uh, tradition? You in the book, you reference Gwendolyn Brooks, Margaret mm-hmm. Walker. Um, and some other of the mid-century um, women's writers who were prolific mm-hmm. uh, during that yeah. time. Yeah. How would you talk about her in that tradition, women's tradition? Yeah, well, I, I think she, you know, clearly Petrie belongs in um, in multiple traditions. Um, I think Hortense Spillers talks about um, uh, uh, continuities and discontinuities, and I think, you know, a, a writer like Petrie certainly is um, in a tradition of a Zora Neale Hurston in terms of um, her interest in, you know, the institution of marriage, in terms of representations, not just of African-American women, but African-American men. You know, Zora Neale Hurston um, and their eyes were watching God and Moses, Man of the Mountain. I mean, she's very interested in um, in male, repre- male representations. Um, you know, and clearly Hansberry is paving the way for, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Petrie is paving the way for Lorraine Hansberry, who, you know, will also, um, you know, treat issues um, of interest and importance to African-American women, but will also foreground um, the, the plight of African-American men and, and the complexities around African-American um, masculinity. So I think, you know, Petrie clearly fits within a, a feminist or, you know, anticipating Walker, a womanist tradition, um, just as much as she, you know, can be put into a uh, into that male tradition. I think she, you know, she's she's boundless in that way. 
Thank you for that. Would you read a portion from the book for us? Oh, I would love to. Um, I have, uh, am looking at the uh, introduction, of, and um, some of your questions have actually um, spoken to some of these issues, and so I think this will this will actually um, go well with some of the things that, that you've uh, that you've asked me. So I'll just read a bit from the introduction, and you just you know tell me when I need to wind it down. Um, so this is the introduction. I entitled the introduction. The Literary Bones of Ann Petrie, Excavating and Resituating a Reluctant Icon. My introduction to Ann Petrie's most widely acclaimed novels, The Street and the Narrows, occurred in an early 1990s graduate seminar at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Until that time, my knowledge of Petrie's work had been limited to the short story, Like a Winding Sheet, which was included in the estimable Richard Barksdale and Kenneth Kinnaman anthology, Black Writers of America, a volume that paved the way for the many African-American literature literature anthologies we are so fortunate to have. Prior to deciding to concentrate on Petrie's writings as the the basis of my next scholarly project, I'd actually conducted extensive research on black Southern writers. I had even spent hundreds of dollars on primary and secondary works. Since I had taught undergraduate and graduate courses on this topic, Declaring it the subject of my next scholarly endeavor made perfect professional sense. However, a trip to Boston dramatically changed my research agenda. A close friend writing a dissertation on Petrie and Dorothy West invited me to accompany her to, accompany her to Boston University's Gottlieb Archival Research Center, where she had arranged to examine Petrie's papers. I was astounded by the volume of material Petrie had left to BU. In addition to handwritten drafts of several works, the 20 or so boxes included a trove of writings and other memorabilia, original versions of nonfiction she'd published in the Crisis and Opportunity magazines, letters she'd written to politicians, including President Richard M. Nixon, letters from elementary students whose classes Petrie had visited, correspondences with members of the Literati, Carl Van Vechten, and others. This cornucopia of of personal and professional artifacts revealed a literarily prolific, politically engaged, socially conscious, and even radical Petrie, a very far cry from the prominent perception of her as aloof, if not outright disdainful, when it came to the spotlight and social engagement. Indeed, she was a far cry from the prototypical damn scribbling black New England woman writer cloistered in the old Saybrook, Connecticut home she shared with her husband, George. Pouring through scores of black and white spec spec composition notebooks containing drafts of her work, I was especially amazed to find a draft of the work I truly consider an unheralded American classic, her 1953 novel, The Narrows, what would be published as a 400-plus page novel she drafted entirely in longhand. This was a truly epiphanic moment, for it brought into sharp relief the tenacity and sheer will it must have taken to fill those notebooks. <laughs> Indeed, this moment convinced me that here was an indefatigable writer whose work warranted wider critical attention, not to mention a larger readership. Mm-hmm. Another determining factor in my decision to redirect my scholarly energy exclusively to Petrie relates to the politics of canon formation and periodization. For several decades, Petrie was known almost singly for her million-copy-selling first novel and for her short story, Like a Winding Sheep, she published in 1945. 
The latter continues to be published regularly in American and African-American literary anthologies. I've always been bothered by how this story, much like James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues, functions almost synecdochically, while Petrie's prodigious output has remained undervalued and understudied. Does the story's inordinate focus stem from its sensational conclusion, in which a long-suffering African-American male factory worker pummels his innocent and defenseless wife, she playfully calls him, quote, a hungry nigger, after he arrives home from the graveyard shift of his mind-numbing, physically debilitating factory job. He couldn't attack his white uh, boss for her not-so-playful use of this racial epithet. Hence, his wife, May, becomes the object of his suppressed rage. Is the story so frequently anthologized because it adheres to the dictates of naturalistic literary discourse and can therefore be extracted from her canon as somehow representative of both her entire body of work and the period in which it was produced? Or is it continually anthologized because it fits snugly into the rubric of literary identity politics as a tale dramatizing black male and black female victimization? In short, does the story function almost as a token narrative that has come to eclipse Petrie's more complexly drawn other short fiction, which cannot be limited to the enshrined category of protest? Very nice. And I think readers um, of your book will be able to respond uh, to those questions. Yeah. Uh, we've taken a lot, up a lot of your time today, um, and so I want to wind great. down. Thank you. <laughs> Can you tell us what you're working on now? Well, that's a, another interesting question, Vershawn. It's not what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, so my uh, editor at LSU, um, as as I was wrapping up this project, um, actually she called me one afternoon and she she had some uh, bad news for me. I had to ch- would have to change the title of the book. And so, um, but in that same conversation, I guess she wanted to give me the the strong medicine first. And so, in that same conversation, she asked me if I'd be interested in um, working on um, another project for them. And so, I am now going to. Um, be turning my attention back southward, and um, I'm going to be working on um, my project will be on Ernest Gaines. Very nice. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds excellent. Can you give yeah. us a, a, a tidbit about uh, what that might be about, or you want to? Yeah, I'm still it's it's still in the in its in co-ate stages. I'm um you know trying to to put it all together, but um I can say that um I am I'm grateful for the opportunity to work on Gaines. I had you know had written about him, I have a chapter on him in my first book, and uh, and really wanted to do more work on him, and I've um published um published a, a couple of articles on him in addition so he you know like petrie had been somebody that i've you know always uh been interested in so i just i'll just say i look forward to to the project and uh hopefully i can answer a little more fully fully uh in the next year or so well we look back uh look forward actually to having you back again on new books in african-american studies oh that'd be wonderful thank you thanks Thanks for listening in to this edition of New Books in African American Studies. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Keith Clark and that you go out and buy his new book, The Radical Fiction of Anne Petrie, published by the Louisiana State University Press in 2013. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, and if you're a teacher or a scholar, it's something worth having. 